when they recorded the show <laughs> back in 1974, they totally had the right filters that one day would be would sound better on Android. The, they knew that day was coming, so they they even set up. I they probably even set up their microphones and their amps and everything. To be they had Androids miking. Androids who traveled back in time. This is Google. Time travel is scheduled for 2015, and they've already. This is the first product from the Google time travel product, which you don't even know about yet because it's still coming up. And they sent the Androids back to do the special Android specific recording in 1974. And this is the first thing we're seeing. And in by the 1974, you mean 1973, right? 73, 74. You know what? <laughs> Those robots were wandering around in the 70s looking for a Stones concert to record. <laughs> Eventually, they found one. It's 9.15 on Tuesday, November 29th, 2011. That means it's time for the Media Loper Bebop. Tonight, are exclusive live albums from the Rolling Stones and Elvis Costello guaranteed to spur piracy? Then... What are series politics? We have a special interview coming up. All that and what's in Kirk's mix on Media Loper Bebop episode 24, Steal This Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Connolly, and tonight I'm sponsored by Firestone Walker Velvet Merlin Oatmeal Stout. And with me, as always, are Tim Mary Gaskell. Sponsored by H2O. And Kirk Pippin Biglioni. Sponsored by Samuel Adams Third Voyage Double IPA. Double IPA. What makes it better than a regular IPA? It's double. It's ah. a double IPA. A couple of weeks ago, the Rolling Stones launched the Rolling Stones Archive and offered for sale an amazing concert from 1973 called The Brussels Affair. One small problem. It's only available on the Android phone platform. The rest <laughs> <laughs> Says the Android owner. <laughs> you guys are so out of luck with your goddamn iPhones. <laughs> and, and, Kirk, and us Android users get to listen to this classic Rolling Stones bootleg, and it's totally legitimate, and it is awesome. You guys should totally hear this. It's amazing. And Too bad you've got your goddamn iPhones with what? You just signed up for your Siri thing, and you've got your two-year contracts. There's no way in hell you're ever going to hear this album. Well, that was my next question. Is there any possible way, just as a, is there any way we can hear this album? I'm confused. Well, yes, Tim, we can switch. Why don't you just switch? I was going to ask you if you switched over to Android in order to get the Rolling Stones exclusive, because that's clearly the reason they did it, right? Right, and then I can switch back to my iPhone once I get it and then pay my out-of-contract fee, and then that, it's all good. So I pay about $300 to get this bootleg, right? Isn't that how it should work? Exactly. Mm. Or, or... I I had the foresight to switch to Android because I knew this sort of thing was coming. 
and of course, there's no way in the world that 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 Kirk would, you know, buy it because he would buy it anyway, and then make copies for Tim and I because that's not the way no. the real world works. Oh, wait a minute. Do I need to bring my lawyer into this? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I'm I am not saying that is what happened. I'm just saying that. Theoretically, hypothetically, it's a possibility that somebody with an Android phone would buy it and then make copies for their friends who don't have Android phones. But let's just tell our younger listeners that maybe that's not um, really a good idea, that you can't really do that. We're just kind of talking in theory. Exactly. What I want to know, Eric, is how many more... Stone's bootlegs are on their way to the Android platform. The ones that we will never hear. The sad thing is that we're discussing the Android exclusivity and how ridiculous that is. But the more interesting thing is that the Stones are apparently on board with the whole bootleg series concept, and that could be potentially amazing. Yes. Uh, Oh, totally. And, And the... Interesting side note is that somehow they're in with Google <laughs> to do their exclusive releases. That doesn't make any sense at all. Well, except for that Google probably gave them a buttload of money, and, and with the Stones in the last 20 years, that's pretty much all it takes. And Keith Richards loves Google. You know, He will not use Bing <laughs> under any circumstance. No. Why would he? Did you know Keith Richards is on Twitter? Ooh. I hope it's voice activated. <laughs> the 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 it, but it's it's really just it's the official Keith account and um it's I I just wish that it was Keith Richards forty years ago and not you know Keith Richards now. True. Yeah, back when Twitter was just starting. Meanwhile, in terms of exclusivity, there's also of course the more common exclusivity, which is you know box sets that are two discs with some cool stuff for 25 bucks and then a couple other discs for $150 and uh, which I'll get into in a little bit and then of course the new Elvis Costello live album. Did you guys know that Elvis Costello had a live album out? Mhm. It's called the Ret- you're supposed to say no for the for oh, the no. sake of the story. Oh, no. No idea. It, it's true. I know. I know everything that Elvis Costello does. I'm an Elvis Costello stalker. How would I not know that? Fair enough. But in case the people out there don't know, our fan, it's called the Return of the Spectacular Spinning Songbook, and it's a live album, of course, and you get a CD and a DVD and a vinyl EP, and. All for the low, low price of $202.66. Well, that's the Amazon discount. Right. The the list price is over $300. So Elvis has taken the uh, semi-precedented move of going on his blog, on his website, and saying, it's overpriced. Why don't you get yourself a Louis Armstrong box set for much cheaper? Because the music is better. Collectively saying, on the Louis Armstrong. Oh, yeah. Ten Remastered Albums by Louis Armstrong is a better deal than this one, and it's half the price. But but, but the thing is, is what in the fuck were these record company people thinking that that somebody's going to buy 
uh, an Elvis Costello live album it, recorded in 2011 mm-hmm. for $200. It's the package. I mean, there's this whole, the new way of thinking about how you're going to package and market and sell media products in the 21st century is we're going to introduce, especially for someone like Elvis Costello, we're going to introduce all kinds of price points. We'll have the cheap download that's, you know, whatever. It's not a real product. If you want to pay whatever we charge for it to get the baseline version, $5, $10, whatever. Then the CD release, then an expanded CD release, then super nice box set with a book and an autograph and a poster and artwork and vinyl and all this different stuff in like a box that's like a collector's item. Let's create products at every price point so you decide how important Elvis Costello is to you and then you buy the thing that matches your love for Elvis Costello. The problem with this is that that doesn't work with a window, and that's what they're doing is a window, because Elvis Costello said in his blog post that cheaper versions are coming out after the new year. They're just trying to capitalize on the holiday season, and that's where this thing really goes wrong, is they're trying to get people to buy it because they don't know that there will be a cheaper version available next month. Well, let's be clear. The the expensive high-end version almost always features a vinyl version. And um, that, to me, that, that that's the thing that kind of takes me out of the equation because I'm not that interested in the vinyl version. But what, what they do at the, the expense of the vinyl version is they also add some other stuff on the seat, like an extra CD or whatever, that you can't get on the knockdown. Yeah, but version. the thing is, is that, is that it's, it's, it's $25 for two discs and then $150 for three discs. And this is... Yeah, th- and you know who started this trend, Bob, I think. Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. I'm beginning to hear voices. There's no one around. I'm all used up. Bootleg series volume eight. Yeah, the Telltale. Though I think it's called Telltale Signs. And yeah, the third disc with the book, you had to pay 150 bucks, or you could pay 20 bucks for the two discs. And or you can do what other a lot of people did, which is. Buy the two disc version and then down find the third disc online, download it, and enjoy the music just as much as the first two that you paid for when you would have paid thirty bucks or thirty-five bucks for all three discs. Yeah. And those were all released concurrently though, weren't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. There was there mm-hmm. was no windowing. So the thing Elvis is saying in his blog post is if you haven't acquired this music by some other means by next year you will have the opportunity to pay for it. Meaning that, you know, he knows that consumers are going to go out and say, I can't afford you know, $200 plus for this thing. I'll download it. And then when the legitimate product comes out, they're not going to sell them because people have already acquired it some other way. Right. Yeah, the fans will. So there's there's that. Then there's the, this this other thing that's come up, which is which is kind of the same thing as the Dylan. Did you guys know that there is a whole 
alternative version of Nevermind and a whole, a whole alternative version of Octoon Baby out there released? No, he said disingenuously. It's tr- it's true. Um, the super deluxe version of Nevermind has uh, the original or a, a Butch Vig mix of the album. The super deluxe version of Octune Baby has what they're calling the the kindergarten version. Both of which one disc historically interesting. Some really good versions of each songs if you've downloaded it. Um, but only part of box sets that cost 125 bucks. Six o'clock in the morning You're the last to hear the warning You've been trying to throw your arms around the world You've been falling off the sidewalk Your lips move but you can't talk Trying to throw your arms around the world yeah, it's behind a money wall, basically, and it just, I, I'm sorry, it does encourage people. It, they might as well say, you know, if you can't afford this, please download it illegally, be our guest, because we are screwing you on purpose. It would be interesting to see or know if the people who make these decisions have any kind of revenue projections or revenue models that show what this strategy produces in terms of total sales versus what it would be if, you know, everything was available in varying formats and there wasn't some exclusive thing that you had to pay an extreme amount for. I think what they're looking for is what they call like first week sales or whatever, like basically the, the up, the, the pre-orders and the first week, you know, it comes out where the, where the publicity and marketing is is at its peak, they really rely on that. They're probably not long-term um, sales that they're looking at. It's probably just the quick hits. They make all their money back in the first few weeks. Except but for that, like a two hundred, three hundred dollar box set. Mm-hmm. Tim, I'm the target audience. Never mind an Octune Baby, like one and two of my favorite albums of the '90s. Right. But I don't own these things. I don't own the Quadrophenia where the, the, there's two extra discs of Pete Townsend demos. Though, would I like to buy them? Yes. But, I mean, justifying that kind of purchase makes no sense now. And so, I don't know. It's just, they. but justifying $30 for makes more sense. It makes total much, much more sense. And the thing is... You know, it would be easy to criticize bands that maybe we didn't respect or whatever, but all these releases are really coming from people that we love. That we, tend, we love, you know, from Dylan to U2 to The Stones to... Uh, the Who. The Who and, uh, and, and others, Pink Floyd even.
Though Pink Floyd, most of the music is available now. Either even the super deluxe versions of of those albums have have songs that are only on the super expensive versions. That yeah. it feels like there should, be, version. there should be one more version that's that's all the music and none of the extraneous packaging. Right. For the people who just want well, the music, who know that they buy, even if they buy the book, they're only going to read it once, and maybe they'll put the poster up, and that's it. But, right now, with with the first Neil Young um, uh, archives, archives. Did, didn't didn't he put? Didn't he make that available as an MP as downloads? Yeah, yeah, it was on eMusic. It was on eMusic, yeah. So at least you know he put it out all at once, and you could choose, and you could get everything that was in the box. I think yeah, it came you know, out in his, several different formats. Yeah, but his his thing was you could opt in at whatever um, kind of audio quality you wanted, rather than being behind, uh, you know, rather than having music behind a money wall where that you couldn't get. It was all about just the music quality. So you had MP3, you had CDs, and then you had Blu-ray, or or was it DVD and <laughs> And to be fair, the alternative, never mind, is available on iTunes. The extra discs of Quadrophenia, I believe, are available on either Amazon, on Amazon. So some of the stuff is out there legitimately if you want to pay for it on top of buying. But once again, you're not getting, you're getting just MP3 quality. So it's still different than being able to buy the album and get the you know uncompressed version of these songs. Yeah, full on Sonic. Yeah, as it were. But what I want to know is, going back to Elvis, can we think of anybody else in the history of rock music or music in general who has basically said, "Don't buy my album; it's too expensive." We know Tom Petty did it with Hard Promises uh, when that came out. He basically said, "This album's overpriced." I uh, tried to keep the price down. Um, usually, when they do the price thing they the 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 bands or the artists they usually win the the argument but uh, in some cases they do not i'm just wondering if there well, are th- other this things. is a uh, like i mean those albums are like a few bucks they're talking about like yeah. maybe 5 at the most this is probably like 100 dollars or more and i think based on some other stuff that i read about this is that he knew he understood he understands that this is supposed to be the super collector high end version but he was he wanted them to do more editions so they could have a lower price and right. they said we're going to hold it at 1500 and this is the price we charge for 1500 right. so he was going to say let's try 3000 and cut the price in half Right. Um, at least with uh, like Rhino Handmade, where they reissue old albums in five thousand edition, you know, editions of five thousand for about thirty bucks. That or, they make by hand. They make those by hand. Yes, in China. <laughs> um, but they. Uh, Is there something wrong with Chinese the, products, Tim? No, I'm looking at one right now. It's called an iPad. Chinese hands you don't like. Yeah, but the Rhino Handmade, even those, those are still reasonably priced. They may be a couple of bucks more, like like yeah, they may be Criterion more, but yeah. they're not ripoff more. Um, but I think they might they might make the stuff available digitally as well on some of those. So, 
But w- when you look at this this high end box set, and this is another category, I think beyond what you're talking about, where the box itself is is an artifact, mm-hmm. and there's you know slip covers an artifact, and inserts and high quality glossy photos are the artifact, and the book. And, you know, all this other stuff, it doesn't sound like from what I've read of the description of the Elvis Costello product, like they really achieved that high end. But it seems like that was what they were going for. So it's just as totally a ripoff then. Maybe if you're not into that sort of thing and you'd rather just have the music, then yes, it's a ripoff. But they need to give you a way to buy the music. If you're the sort of person that likes having, likes displaying your media in a public way so that all of your visitors can see what your taste is, then maybe it's not such a ripoff. I don't know anyone like that, but you guys might know someone like that. I don't know. Uh, all I know is this. I'm looking forward to seeing this. <laughs> Because uh, I saw the original Spinning Songbook tour, the sorry, the spectacular Spinning Songbook tour back in London, back in like the late '80s, um, and it was an amazing show. I had great seats. It well, was I've, very memorable. Nick Lowe came out and played, and it was it was just, is, it was amazing. Tim, they're putting a box set of that out next year. You know what the price is? I don't care. I'll pay it. Three million dollars. That's. Totally with this, well. is, this, this is the sad thing about this is that you know we're talking about you know the great Elvis Costello tours, the great Rolling Stones live album. We're like we're talking about this stuff that shouldn't matter when really it's like this this these performances are being made available. We should be talking about how great they are. Absolutely, not the box itself. Exactly, because that's what you know the the bold bootleg culture back in the day. Remember, they came in like white sleeves with maybe a photocopied, you know, artwork or something slipped in, and it was all about getting, you know, getting the album, owning the performance, and being able to enjoy it. It was nothing about the packaging. Nobody cared anything about the packaging. It was uh, that's that that whole thing really, really took off with the CD. Well, there were some uh, uh, trademark equality, um, the bootleg label TMQ did actually do some packaging, like Tales from the Who. There was a guy named William Stout who did a bunch of super cool covers for a bunch of bootlegs. I mean, you're right in general, but there, there were even bootleg labels in the 70s and 80s that, that, that did more elaborate packaging. But, the and bootlegs were always a little bit more expensive, but they weren't that much more expensive. Not And you never bought it for the packaging. Right. No, no, that's true. Although that was... The idea behind them producing great packaging was to show that hey, we're real fans. We like we're we're putting this much into it. It kind of raises the the value, the perceived value for the fans when they see that this bootleg has actually got a high quality cover and everything. So I understand that. You're listening to Media Loper Bebop. Don't you have anything better to do with your life? Siri, have you ever had an abortion? Sorry, I couldn't find any abortion clinics. Is Siri pro-life? We figured instead of asking Siri about that, we would just interview Siri and try to determine her politics in general. So, Siri. Siri, when do you think life begins? 
I'm sorry. I'm afraid I can't answer that. Siri, what is the role of government in a free society? Let me check that for you. Okay. How about a web search for the role of government in a free society? Siri, are corporations people? I don't know what you mean by Siri, are corporations people? Siri, is Apple a person? I can't answer that. Siri, do you favor raising taxes on the rich? I found seven tax consultants. Five of them are fairly close to you. They might have a better answer for you. Siri, what do you think of Herman Cain's 999 tax plan? I found seven tax consultants. Five of them are fairly close to you. Do you feel like Siri just then was a little bit more annoyed with me? Yeah. She's like, you know, anything with a tax question, just call just call one of these and shut the F up, is what she's saying. Basically. You know, I feel like she's avoiding, like she knows that at some point in the future she might be running for office, and she doesn't want anything to go, like, down on the record as a position. Those are the kind of answers she's giving you. Siri. Oh, goddamn. Here. <laughs> Good. Siri. Should America's foreign policy be essentially isolationist, or should we try to spread democracy throughout the world? Sorry, I don't understand. Does Siri believe in God? Siri, do you believe in God? Sorry, I don't know where that is. Um, mm. God is in heaven. Do you know where that is? Are you? <laughs> no, I'm in Glendale. Do you know where heaven is? Where God nope. is? Okay, here's a place matching God is. It's a little ways from Glendale. <laughs> Good. It's the West so, Vernon Avenue God is Love Missionary Church, by the way. Aha, uh -huh. so we found him. That's where he is. <laughs> Siri. It's a little ways from Glendale. Siri here. Siri, what should be done about unemployment? I don't know what you mean by, Siri, what should be done about unemployment? Do you think people should get off their lazy asses and get a job already? I think differently. Whoa. Um, okay, how do you think differently? I'm sorry. I'm afraid I can't answer that. Then, then, then why bring it up in the first place? Okay, here's a place matching bring it. It's a little ways from CA1, Los Angeles. Siri, do you hide your politics behind maps? I didn't find any political consultants. Do you guys have any questions for Siri? Mm, I think she's answered everything. <laughs> Kirk? That went really well, Jim. <laughs> so, we could ask your Android um, personal assistant yeah. the same yeah, questions, Kirk. Kirk? It's, 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 it, the personal assistant on the Android is Edwin. Edwin was supposed to be like an early version of Siri, but he was very bad and he had a really bad British accent. 
And this is why Cassie always calls my phone Edwin. Edwin is the name of my phone because of this. <laughs> Edwin gets everything wrong. Edwin's days are numbered. You know what we didn't ask is one more question, then we'll go on. Wait, hang on. Where's Albert Pujols going to play next year? Siri, where is Albert Pujols going to play baseball next year? I found 11 swimming pools. <laughs> Eight of them are fairly close to you. The uh, Albert Pujols. Those, those are great pools. <laughs> I found 15 places matching Albert. 12 of them are fairly close to you. So I get the, I interpret that as he's going to play for the Dodgers, which is not good. So what's amazing to me is that through all of this, you're not being trained by Siri how to ask her questions in a way that produces more entertaining answers. <laughs> Instead, you just keep asking. You're on your agenda. You're not going to be... You're like, you're like one of those Republican candidates. <laughs> You've got your agenda. You're going to follow it. You're not going to... Yeah, you're not going to take any of series in feedback, you know, into account. I I just want to point out that I feel like I was fair and balanced. You made Siri cry. <laughs> Are you happy now? I don't think I made Siri cry. I don't think I made Siri. Did I make you cry? I don't know what you mean by Siri. Do I make you cry? <laughs> Kirk, did I make you cry? <laughs> I, I, I think your relationship with Siri is not what it could be. And I, and and I'm not, and I'm not, and I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not suggesting that it's Siri's fault. <laughs> no, I didn't take it as you were <laughs> suggesting it was Siri's fault. That was not even anything that remotely crossed my mind. I think it's a relationship that will grow in time. <laughs> And speaking of time, it's time for In The Mix. And this week, Kirk tells us what's in his mix. My mix is a mess because <laughs> of the iTunes cloud. The goddamn 25,000 song minimum, maximum. Maximum, 25,000 song maximum. The new Desert Island disc is not what 10 albums would you be stranded on a desert island with. It's if you were stranded <laughs> in the cloud and you could only bring 25,000 songs with you, what would they be? And it's harder than it sounds. And so I've had to jump through all these hoops to do weird things with my iTunes library. And as a result, my iTunes library is in complete disarray. So this is my disclaimer. Some of what's in my mix may seem unlikely, but it's because of this. And some of it won't seem unlikely at all. My first album, the new Tom Waits album, Bad As Me. What was the name? It was Jeff. Jeff. Should all acquaintance be forgotten and never brought 
which we've been talking about for like three months on this podcast. We've been pretending it hasn't been released yet. Tim was going to put it in his mix. He hadn't listened to it yet, but he had the intention to put it into his mix. It's been in my mix for two months, and it is a classic. This is a classic Tom Waits album. It's been seven years in the making, and it was worth... This is the one album that took seven years to make that was worth it. It is like... It's like a, a, a Tom Waits retrospective of, like, the best of Tom Waits, but it's all new. It's like he's made a best of that's all new. It's amazing. It's a classic. It's epic. I will have satisfaction. I will be satisfied. I will have satisfaction. I will be satisfied. Now, Mr. Jagger and Mr. Richards, I will scratch where I've been itching. Now, Mr. Jagger and Mr. Richards, I will scratch where I've been itching. Is it, is, do you think it might be his best? I don't know. It's hard. I mean, looking at the, the career of Tom Waits, uh, it, he's been through so many different phases. It's hard to... Uh, it's hard to pick an album as the best. I think we need at least a decade of time right. from a certain release to say to assess where it fits in his overall body of work. But I think this is going to be up there. This is just an, uh, an amazing album. Also in my mix is a for 2011 a goddamn lot of Rolling Stones. Where the hell did all this Rolling Stones <laughs> music from? All of a sudden, between the Brussels affair, which I have because I have an Android phone, which is also available on Wolfgang's Vault, right. but only for streaming, not for download. Um, and the Some Girls reissue with the extra album of material. Um, I have a lot of Rolling Stones in the mix and it's great to hear Some Girls sounds great Retrospect, um, the extra songs, many of which are, I mean, it's an enjoyable companion disc to the reissue. Uh, I think probably as song for song, better than the extra songs that were released with the expanded Exile on Main Street. Do you think the extra disc is completely different of an album, though? 
completely different. In, in other words, in other words, like some girls has a definite sound. It's it's yes, it's, and but the extras really don't fit into that sound. So the thing about the extras is they sound like they're studio recordings, not outtakes that were never mixed. Right. It's like they got a proper mix. Maybe not enough to be on the album. Um, it's it it they fit into what they were doing at that time, but they don't fit into what eventually became some girls. And some of that, I think, means that they really made some good choices when it came time to pare down all the songs they had to work with. Some girls give money. Some girls buy clothes. Some girls Which makes some girls sound that much better in retrospect. Because some of those extra songs are really good. Yep. It's a good extra disc. It wouldn't have made for a great double album in the era. It would have watered down the impact of some girls. But at this distance, it's nice to have those songs. Completely agreed. You have to wonder why they didn't use more for B-sides and stuff like that back then. Oh, they knew the labels were going to screw them when it came to digital. So they were just, you know, they were... Really... Plus, I mean, the really, I mean, we can't talk about this era of the Rolling Stones without talking about the tragic plane crash that happened at the end of the Some Girls tour. <laughs> is this the one that claimed the cat burglars? This is the one that claimed all of the Rolling Stones, although some people think that Bill Wyman lived. I don't see any evidence that any of them lived after the end of that plane crash. Now tell me something, Mr. Government Man, tell me something. My final in the mix is the complete works of Linton Kwesi Johnson. <clears throat> which um, would not be in my current mix if it weren't for the finagling I had to do with uh, moving large quantities of music back and forth and excluding large quantities of music from my total mix to get under the 25,000 song limit and now I'm bringing music that I had excluded which it turned out that my reggae genre was larger than the number of tracks that I had to exclude from my mix to get into iTunes so I compromised by leaving all reggae out of the iTunes mix to get in and now I'm bringing it back in and and the complete works of Linton Questy Johnson have emerged as new imports so they match my smart mix for recently added so I have I've got bass culture, forces of victory uh, making history LKJ and Dub 1, 2, and 3. Wasn't LKJ and Dub the basis for uh, Chipmunk Dub? Yes, it Dub? was. Yes, it was. No, and Lucia and Dub Lucia as well. Dub too. There are now two additional volumes of LKJ and Dub. <laughs> They're so, all in my mix. All this LKJ 
And, you know, it's so timely. It's the Occupy Wall Street, Occupy whatever city you're in. LKJ should be a figurehead in this movement. Everything he was singing about, his perspective, the way he talks about the class system is as true today as it was when he was doing his classic music in Thatcher's Britain in the 80s. Oh, sir, just one more thing. One more thing, Tim. One more thing. Um, there's a great blog on uh, the NPR.org website, All Songs Considered, and there was a blog post today by uh, Charlie Kaplan regarding Patti Smith Horses. What they're doing is they're getting their young interns to listen to classic albums and write about them, and this guy wrote a great piece on horses, and it's great to hear uh, perspective from somebody who's probably uh, just out of, maybe out of their teenage years listening to something that's, uh, you know, 35 years old and having a great take on it, and I recommend this. It's all songs considered on NPR.org. One more thing, Kirk. So um, this week, Nick Belton from the New York Times had uh, an article on um, the latest article on um, airlines requiring that passengers turn off all of their electronic devices before (laughs) takeoff and landing. And no one really knows or can explain why this is a technical requirement. Um, RF signals, isn't that always some sort of magical RF signals thing? Right, yeah, but no, you know, we know that not everyone turns everything off, and we know that no planes have crashed as a result in the modern era. My question for you two is that for, for you Two, Jim and Tim, not you two being Bono and the Edge and Larry Adam Mullen, and Larry. <laughs> Adam. Yeah. You two <laughs> is is you both have Kindle I I uh, E Ink Kindles, right? You both have Kindles in your family. Yeah. Right? I just you got a travel, touch. You've traveled with these Kindles, right? Yes. No, I haven't not not in an airplane. Okay, this is something for you to obsess over, Jim. When the stewardess, or flight attendant, to be politically correct, asks you to turn off everything, including your Kindle, what exactly does she mean? How do you turn off a Kindle? (laughs) There is no off switch on the Kindle. There's no off switch. And there's... you. You can put it into screensaver mode, but it's on in the same way it is when you're reading. Right. You've got something on the screen, and it's in the same mode, and it's the electricity isn't off. The only way to turn it off is to pull the battery. You want to explain that to them? I'll just bring a magazine for that part of the flight. I want to know how the hell I'm supposed to turn a Kindle off. There's no off button on the Kindle. <laughs> Tell them that and they'll throw you off the plane. Because I'm a Muslim. Exactly. I just, want to, I, just, I, could, I could just see Kirk 
being dragged off the plane by, by two TSA agents screaming the whole time, but there's no off button! I can't turn it off! There's no off button! I actually want to see that, that, that grainy video. One more thing. I'm going to throw my two cents in worth on some girls. It's hard to imagine, but 1978, some girls was seen as a bit of a comeback, a return to focus after the draggy drugginess of their three post-exile albums. But all I know for sure is what it was the straight first straight-ahead rock records that the Rolling Stones released after I became a teenager. And I fell hard for all of Keith's and Ron's slashing guitars on songs like When the Whip Comes Down and Respectable, and also thought that Mick just killed it on things like Shattered and Some Girls. And Shattered... <laughs> Shattered isn't even really a song. Shattered is a riff with words, and Mick just kind of making shit up as he goes along. And it's fucking brilliant. Does it matter? Uh-huh. Does it matter? Uh-huh. I'm a Shattered. Shattered. Some Girls was mean, nasty, down-to-earth, and just plain rocked the fuck out. And oh yeah, during a summer where I was stuck in an office that only had an AM radio, I grew to love the straightforward rock disco of Miss You as a highlight among the real disco and bad 70s ballads that dominated the top 40 in the summer of 1978. All in all, Some Girls was a perfect Rolling Stones album for a 15-year-old boy who was also getting into punk rock. And so now, all these years later, while I know that the holy quartet of XL and Main Street, Sticky Fingers, Let It Bleed, and Beggar's Banquets are all objectively better albums, I gotta say that Some Girls is not just the most fun record they ever recorded, it might just be my secret favorite. And it was the last album they ever recorded. (laughs) Of course. According to so- so- some sources. See, um, Tattoo You was pretty goddamn great. Yeah. But but you know what? Here's the thing. Tattoo You was mostly recorded bef- in the Some Girls or Before sessions. So technically, Tattoo You falls under the Rolling Stones are dead. Well, yes, this is true. <laughs> some tracks they recorded before the crash were reused in later albums. It happened with Emotional Rescue, too. Yep. Hmm. Interesting theory. So, we're sorry for the death of the Rolling Stones 30 years, 35 years almost after it happened. And may they rest we in peace. We should be having a memorial for the <laughs> Rolling Stones, is what it sounds like. Well, I feel like this podcast was kind of a bit, a bit of a memorial for the Rolling Stones. I just want to know who I saw in concert. Tim and I saw in concert in 81, and I saw again in 89. Cylons. And I saw again in 96. When did I see him? 95? 96? Oh, definitely Cylons. <laughs> and that does it for me, Loper Bebop, episode 24, Steal This Podcast. 
My thanks to the other guys who put up with this madness. Tim Gaskell. Down. And Kurt Biglioni. I'm going to buy that Elvis Costello box set. You guys convinced me. I must have it. <laughs> I'm your host, Jim Connolly. I'd like to thank you for listening this far. And we'll catch you guys again next week. Same Bebop time, same Bebop channel. <laughs>